As we look to Exodus chapter 34 tonight, we need to remember the context in which we're in in the story of Exodus right now. Exodus 32, 33, and 34 is a description of probably one of the lowest points of Israel's history as a nation. It is the account of their sin of worshiping an idol, worshiping the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. While Moses was up on top of the mountain meeting with God, discussing his laws, getting plans and designs for the tabernacle and its furnishings, down below the people of Israel were already breaking the covenant. Now, this is just a human illustration, but it's not one that the Bible doesn't use at times to describe the relationship between God and his people. But imagine your spouse being unfaithful to you on your honeymoon. That's essentially what's happening here with the Israelite people being unfaithful to God while the the ink is still drying on the covenant, in essence. God has just made the covenant. He's just given them the Ten Commandments. Moses is still up there receiving more revelation from God, and they've already grown impatient, and they've already wandered off the path and have already violated the very foundational uh, commandments that are the very first two of the covenant. Don't worship any other gods. Don't make any graven images of any likeness of anything. And they've already violated that covenant. We've seen that God was angry with them. God's holy and righteous anger was ready to destroy them, was ready to start over again with Moses, but Moses interceded. Moses pleaded with God on behalf of the Israelite people and and pleaded with God on the basis of God's own name and his own character, his own reputation. And God listened to the intercession of Moses and he promised to not destroy them. So he's already shown his graciousness and his compassion. The Lord has shown his graciousness and compassion in that he at first said, I'm not going to go with you. Go on to the promised land. Go and go to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I'm not going with you because you're a stubborn and hard-hearted people. And if I were to go with you, I would destroy you along the way. Moses intercedes again before God. And Moses says to God, Lord, if you're not going to go with us, then there's no point in going up at all. Because what is Canaan without you? What is the promised land without the God who promised it? What is the gift without the giver? And so Moses said, we are defined by you. Your name is attached to us without you, without your presence. We're nothing. We're no different than any other nation on the face of the earth. So Lord, please go with us. The Lord once again listened to the intercession of Moses and agreed to go with his people. And now at the beginning of chapter 34, we're in the midst of a request by Moses to see the glory of the Lord. Moses says, Lord, please show me your glory. And God says to Moses, you can't see my face. In other words, you can't see the the full infinite manifestation of the glory of God. Nobody can, nobody can do that and live. 
It's impossible. It's too, it's too beyond finite human capacity to see the full infinite display of God's glory and character. But God did condescend to Moses' request and said, here's what I will do for you. Here's what you're capable of receiving. I will take you and put you in the cleft of the rock, in a cave, if you will, and I will cover you with my hand. I'll pass over and you can see my back parts, like the remnants of my glory as I pass over you. And that was enough to keep his face shining for weeks. But that's what you're able to handle as a finite human being. And so God was gracious in revealing himself to Moses. And what we find in chapter 34 at the beginning here in verses 1 through 9 is a continuation of that revelation of who God is. It is a revelation of who God is in his essential being, his essential core attributes to Moses. And so the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 1, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, Forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for the grace, the compassion that you show to your people. A grace and a compassion that is completely undeserved. Lord, this interaction between you and your servant Moses reveals in a very profound, very clear way who you are in your essential attributes, your essential nature. Lord, may this description, this proclamation of who you are, may it cause in us a similar response to that which Moses had, which was to bow in worship before you. Lord, move in our hearts, open your word to our understanding and apply it to us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In this passage, this whole passage is focused on 
the graciousness and the compassion of God. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that the Holy One of Israel displays his compassion and his grace. The Holy One of Israel displays his compassion and his grace. I think in the opening verses of our passage tonight, we see God's grace and his compassion put on display as evidence uh, in action of who he is in his core character. In a moment, he's going to proclaim these core attributes. But right now, he is displaying them through his actions on behalf of his people. I've already mentioned a few of the ways that God has already been gracious and compassionate. He's already been gracious and compassionate by not destroying the people when they had sinned against him. He's already demonstrated his graciousness and his compassion by agreeing to go with them on the way to the promised land. He's already expressed and and displayed his grace and compassion to Moses when when he invited Moses up to the mountain and, and agreed to Moses' request to show the Lord's glory to him, at least in a diminished way, in a small, finite way, to display his glory. But now in chapter 34, verses 1 through 5, we see that the Lord is again displaying his grace and compassion in this way, because he is willing to renew the broken covenant. He is willing to renew the broken covenant. And we get that from the Lord's instructions to Moses to go and get two more stone tablets and prepare them and bring them up the mountain to meet with the Lord again. What does this signify? It signifies that just as the two broken tablets that Moses shattered when he saw the sin of the people when he came down from the mountain, that symbolized the the rupture, the breaking of the covenant between God and his people. Now, with the reinscription, the remaking, if you will, of those two tablets of stone, that signifies the renewal of the covenant the remaking of the covenant. And and isn't that incredible? Just thinking about the illustration that I used a few moments ago of imagine if a spouse had been unfaithful to you on your honeymoon. And now the Lord is saying, I will still take you as my people. And I will remake this covenant with you. That, it, that shows how incredibly merciful and gracious God is, doesn't it? that he would take this stiff-necked people, which Moses acknowledges at the end of the passage. Yes, indeed, we are a stiff-necked and stubborn people, but Lord, please go with us. Here in God's instruction to prepare covenants or prepare tablets for the reinscription of the Ten Commandments is a display of God's grace and compassion in that he is willing to enter into a covenant again with these stubborn people, these rebellious people. Indeed, he is a gracious and compassionate God. There are a few things here in this passage that show, I think very clearly, that this implies a renewal, a remaking of the covenant. First of these factors is the bringing up of the two tablets. So this mirrors exactly the the previous two tablets that Moses had. And so that signifies also that this is not a different covenant. 
So he is renewing the covenant, he's remaking the covenant, but it is not a a new and different covenant. It is the same covenant represented by the fact that the same laws will be inscribed on two replacement stones. So it is a renewal of the same covenant. Also, there's another thing here that corresponds to chapter 19 with the making of the first covenant. And that is that in the preparations for the, the making of the covenant, It is for the people to prepare themselves, to consecrate themselves, to prepare for this moment. And then there's also a third um, indication here, and that is the Lord coming down in a cloud and meeting with Moses. That that represents or that, that matches up with the smoke and the fire of chapter 19, verse 18. In other words, the same ceremonial rules are put in place that we saw in chapter 19. Don't get too close to the mountain. Don't let the Israelites approach. No, not even any animals are to approach the mountain. Two tablets, renewing, remaking the first two that were broken. And the theophany of God coming down and meeting with Moses, just like in chapter 19. It signifies basically a redoing of what took place in chapter 19 and 20. This is a renewal of the covenant. And that displays in an incredible way God's grace and his compassion. So God's grace and compassion is displayed by what he does for his people. Secondly, this passage proclaims the grace and the compassion of God. So not only does does God put it on display in his willingness to re-enter this broken covenant, but he also declares it. He proclaims his graciousness and compassion. Verse 5 says, that then the Lord came down in the cloud and he stood there with him, that is with Moses, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And if you notice at the end of verse five and then also in verse six, where we have the Lord repeated twice, it is all capital letters, which means that this is the way of portraying the divine name, Yahweh the divine name of God that he revealed to his people. This is the name by which he would be known. And God, in this declaration of who he is, declares, pronounces his own name. And what is amazing about this declaration of who God is, is this is not someone else describing who God is in his attributes. So this is not a theologian saying this is how God is. Though there's a place for that. But in this case, this is God himself saying, this is who I am. And so it it brings up to the point of emphasis and, and greatness showing that this is who God is. And this is how he chooses to identify himself. This is how he chooses to reveal himself and his essential character to Moses. And he begins by proclaiming his own name. And he does it in an emphatic way by saying in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord. So he says his name twice for emphasis. And then the implication is in that the attributes, the characteristics that he is about to mention that those are so closely identified with who he is that they are the essence of his name. That to say 
The name Yahweh is to bring into our understanding these attributes of who God is. Another way of understanding that is that is that God's identity, who God is, is the combination of all of his attributes. The combination of all of his attributes. In our Sunday school class, we've been studying Bible doctrine, Bible theology. And when we were talking about the doctrine of God, we discussed the concept that theologians call the simplicity of God. And the simplicity of God means that God cannot be broken down into parts. God, God is one. He is a unity. He is, he is simple in the sense that he is one. And whereas we are complex in the sense that we have many parts. So, for example, um, if I were to lose my arm, I'm still me, right? That, that's still who I am. If I were to lose an eye, that I'm still me. But God being simple means that you can't take away anything from God and him still be God. So you can't take out God's love and him still be God. You can't take out his holiness and him still be God. You can't break God down into parts. He is one. He is a unity. And he is the total collection of all of his divine attributes. That's who he is. And that's why he identifies himself this way in this passage. The Lord, Yahweh, this is who I am in a self-declaration. And he proclaims his essential attributes. What does he proclaim? What does he reveal about himself to Moses? And by the way, this is as the Lord is passing over Moses, right? So so Moses is receiving a, a visual revelation of God and his glory in a diminished way, in a finite way that Moses is able to handle as God reveals a portion of his glory, but he's seeing a visible representation of God's glory, and he's also hearing with his own ears God's own voice declaring who he is in his essential nature. And as the Lord is passing over Moses, he is proclaiming his nature, and he says, the Lord, the Lord, is compassionate. He is a gracious God. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love and faithfulness. He maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so he proclaims essential aspects of his goodness to Moses. Now, what is interesting about this passage is that the Lord does not describe all of his attributes. We might could include here other attributes of the Lord that are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, such as the holiness of the Lord. Or uh, we might say his power, that he is infinite in power or infinite in knowledge, his omniscience. But the ones that he focuses on here, the ones that the Lord himself chooses to reveal are the ones that most prominently display his goodness. And that's amazing when you think about 
the context in which this is revealed. Because it is revealed in the context of the Israelites' sin in the worship of the golden calf. That God would say, in the midst of this event, that he is a God who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. When that sin has just been committed in an incredibly heinous way in the sight of God, that speaks to his graciousness and compassion, doesn't it? He is revealing his characteristics of goodness and mercy to Moses. Just for a moment, let's think about some of these attributes. He says that he is compassionate. This word, compassion, in the Hebrew, as well as its its a partner term in the Greek, both of them connotate the idea of, of something that goes to the gut. Something that, that is core, internal, and something that you feel internally. That's why sometimes in the King James Version, you'll read bowels of mercies or bowels of compassion. The idea of, of that is the, the Hebrew word and the Greek word both convey that idea of that which is like a, at a gut level feeling of of goodwill toward someone else. It it is essentially an emotional reaction of sympathy and tender-hearted mercy at a very core level. That's who God is. He's a God who who feels and expresses compassion, mercy, sympathy to those who are in need. He is gracious, gracious. And, and the idea of grace is someone who responds favorably to someone else's need. Someone who responds favorably to someone else's need, whether it's a desire for mercy or for help or for forgiveness, it is God's willingness to give. It's his openness and his willingness to give even to those that don't deserve it. It's a, it's a favorable disposition towards someone who is not worthy of that favor. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. And, and the idea of slowness to anger is that, is that God, even in the face of rebellion and sin and wickedness, is long-suffering. He is long-suffering, and many times he permits opportunity for repentance, and he grants occasions to grant forgiveness and for people to find mercy. God, God's holy anger is not a knee-jerk reaction, if you will. God, in his holy anger, is able to show restraint. We see that even on display in this passage when God is in his holy wrath, wants to destroy Israel, and in fact would be justified in doing so, but he does not immediately act on that, does he? In fact, he invites Moses into a conversation about that. And Moses intercedes then on behalf of the people, and the Lord does not destroy the people. He is slow to anger. And so he is gracious and compassionate. And one commentator notes that it is only God's grace and his compassion that allows the rest of Israel's story to happen. 
It is only his grace and compassion that allows the rest of Israel's story to happen. He's a compassionate God. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. The word that is used here is a word that is used often in the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew word chesed, which sometimes can be translated as covenant faithfulness, covenant love, covenant mercy, loyal love. There are many different ways that it's translated in the Old Testament. But it seems at the core of it is the idea of a disposition of kindness that shows mercy to those who are in need of mercy. It is very similar to the Greek word charis or grace in that God shows love and compassion and goodwill, kindness to those that need it. He is abounding. He is great in chesed, in love. He is also abounding in faithfulness. And the word means the idea of that which is dependable, that which is solid, that which has integrity, that which can be trusted. And in this context, it means that when someone needs mercy, one can depend, one can rely on God for that mercy because he's faithful and he will be there. And then he says that he maintains love. Again, the same word, chesed, maintaining love to thousands. Now, there's actually a disagreement here about what this verse means, whether it means that God is showing love to thousands of people or that God is demonstrating love for thousands of generations. So is he talking about people or is he talking about time? And you could look at different translations and they take it different ways. And the commentaries are almost evenly split. But I tend to side with the view that it's talking about time. That, that the Lord is merciful, that he's loving to a thousand generations. And one of the reasons that I take it that way is because in the context of Exodus 34, in just a, in just a few words, we're going to see that God's justice extends to the third and fourth generation. So he's loving to a thousand generations, which shows the incredible, magnanimous, gracious character of God, that he's loving to a thousand generations, but in his justice, he is even merciful in that because his justice and his wrath only go to the third and fourth generation. But another reason why I take it this way is because of a parallel verse in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, where it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, it's more specific and specifically mentions generations when it mentions the thousand. So using that parallel and also with the third and fourth generation in this context, I tend to favor the view that it's talking about a thousand generations. In other words, God's mercy is infinite. His love that he extends to his people is infinite and has no end. You literally cannot measure it. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And isn't it interesting that several synonyms are piled together here 
to show the different kinds of, of evil that God is willing to forgive. It doesn't just mention one term for sin. It mentions three different terms for sins, which means that, that God's forgiveness extends to all kinds of sins, no matter the degree God is willing to forgive. And that is a comforting thought, isn't it? God is a forgiving God. J. Wilbur Chapman, he is uh, the one who wrote one of the hymns that we sang tonight, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. And over a hundred years ago, he wrote, or he told the story of a German mathematics professor that had come to know the Lord under his ministry, and he became a member of his congregation. So one morning during a men's study at the church, J. Wilbur Chapman was, had commented on the verse where it says that God has taken our sins and removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. And he turned to the, this mathematics professor and says, uh, how far is the east from the west? And according to J. Wilbur Chapman, this mathematics professor replied with tears in his eyes that if you put a stake in the ground and move west you will continue to move west. You go all the way around the world and you can keep on going past your stake and you'll keep going west. And you're, you're, So in other words, he says it's immeasurable. It's immeasurable. The distance from the east to the west is immeasurable. And he said in response, uh, that is something that th- this, th- and thank God that this is where my sins have gone, he says. That's how far away God has taken my sins. It is an immeasurable distance. God is a forgiving God. He is forgiving by nature. And how much he has demonstrated that to us in Jesus Christ, hasn't he? All of these attributes of God, his compassion, his grace, his loving kindness, his slowness to anger, his willingness to forgive, all of these find their ultimate fulfillment and display to us in Christ, don't they? So God is a compassionate and gracious God, and he proclaims that. But notice in verse 7 that the Lord also maintains his justice and righteousness, doesn't he? So that's what I mean. When, when, we, when we talk about God, we have to talk about all of God's attributes because they all cohere together as a unity. And God is gracious and compassionate, yes, but that doesn't mean that he, he just puts out there a, a blanket amnesty for anyone and everyone to do what they want. God is still a God of justice. He's still a God of righteousness. Those who seek him, those who come pleading for forgiveness and mercy as Moses has done and Moses has done on behalf of his people, God is a long-suffering and tender-hearted and forgiving God. But for those who are stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious, for those who, who are determined in their unbelief and rebellion, God is a God who is a God of justice and a God of righteousness. And he punishes sin. And so it says in verse 7, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, what does that mean? We encountered this phrase back in chapter 20, 
of Exodus. It, it does, what it means essentially is that sin is serious in the eyes of God. Sin is serious in the eyes of God, and many times our own individual sins have consequences and effects that extend beyond ourselves. And this also fits in with the the Israelite, the Hebrew concept of corporate solidarity. That, That the sin of one is also the sin of the community. And you can even see that in Moses here, when in verse number nine, he acknowledges, Lord, this is a stiff-necked people, but forgive our wickedness and our sin. And Moses wasn't down at the bottom of the mountain making a golden calf. He was up with the Lord. But notice how he describes the sin of the people. He includes himself in that. Daniel does the same thing in Daniel chapter 9 when there's nothing derogatory ever said about Daniel in the book of Daniel. He is regarded as a man of righteousness, of blameless character. And yet when he prays in Daniel chapter 9, he says, Lord, forgive our sin. Forgive our wickedness. So there's this concept of corporate solidarity where the sin of the one affects the whole community. We can see this on display in the sin of Achan in in the book of Joshua, don't we? where Achan sins and the whole Israelite community suffers defeat in battle. And even Achan's family receives the repercussions, the consequences of his own sin. So there are, there are effects, there are consequences for sin that, that God takes very seriously. And sometimes those effects, those consequences extend beyond us and can even have multi-generational effects. So God is just, he is righteous. And so even in the midst of this revelation of his gracious and merciful character, he still maintains his justice and righteousness. And they're held together in union in the person of God. So the gracious and compassionate God, he displays that through his willingness to enter into covenant with a sinful people. He proclaims his graciousness and compassion as he reveals himself to Moses. And thirdly, and finally in this passage, we see that the appropriate response to the grace and the compassion of God is worship. The appropriate response to the grace and the compassion of God is worship. Notice what Moses does in verse 8. The Lord has passed over him. His glory has passed over him. He has declared with his own voice his name and his essential core attributes of goodness. And Moses' response is one that it could only be, and that is to bow down in humility and worship before the Lord. And acknowledge, Lord, you are great. You are wonderful. You are gracious. You are loving. You are faithful to a thousand generations. And he worships the Lord. That is the right response of God's people to the revelation of who God is. That when God shows himself, when he displays himself, when he proclaims who he is, when we come and hear his word proclaimed, his truth explained, our response should be the same as that of Moses. Lord, you are worthy to be worshiped. You are worthy of praise. And then in verse nine, Moses once again 
prays and pleads with the Lord. And you might ask, why does he do this again? Because much of what he says here in this verse, he's already asked the Lord for, and the Lord has already granted it earlier in the passage. So why is he asking this again? In verse nine, he says, Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Well, the Lord's already said, Moses has already prayed that. And the Lord has already said, I will go with you. My presence will accompany you. And then Moses says, although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So this is something, this, in essence, this is, these are things that Moses has already prayed. Why is he praying it again? My, my only conclusion can be that he's moved to when he sees this fuller revelation of the character and the nature of God. That that when he sees a greater view of who God is, when he hears this, this announcement of the core goodness of God, that his only response is, Lord, yes. Yes, please forgive. Yes, Lord, please go with us. Please display these attributes of your gracious character. And it's really not very different from what Daniel does in Daniel chapter 9, where he knows that the prophet Jeremiah has said that the exile will last 70 years. And that 70 years is about up. And so Daniel could say, oh, well, I don't have to do anything because that 70 years is about up. God's already promised that we're coming out of exile, so let's just wait around for it. But Daniel doesn't do that. In light of God's promise that they're going to come home after 70 years, guess what Daniel does? He prays. He prays in line with what he has just learned about God's will and God's promise. I think Moses does something similar here. He's just learned some more. He's, he's had a greater insight into who God is. And so he prays in line with that revelation of God's character. But he concludes with worship and with prayer. And so may we have that same response to the gracious disposition of our God. And this is a passage of scripture. These, these verses right here in verses six and seven, they are found all the way throughout scripture. If you, if you have a book like uh, Nave's topical Bible or like a Thompson chain reference Bible that where you can search uh, cross references topics you will find these exact words from Exodus 34, 6, and 7 all the way across the Bible. In every section of the Bible, in Numbers, in Psalms, in Jonah, in Nahum, some in the New Testament. In other words, this becomes almost like a a very early initial theological creed of who God is. And it came from the words of God himself. This is who he is. In fact, even faithful Jewish adherents today still continue to refer to God this way using these words. It is an essential uh, revelation of who God is in his character. And so when we think of our God, may we think of him this way. Because this is how he has revealed himself. He is the compassionate God. He is the gracious God. He is the loving God, the faithful God, the forgiving God. 
and yes, a God of justice and righteousness. But let us think of him this way and let us then be moved to worship him in line with how he has revealed himself to us. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, Lord, what a privilege it is to hear your own declaration of who you are. You have revealed yourself in these words. And Lord, it is truly humbling when we stop and think about how we are completely undeserving of the goodness that you display. Just like the Israelites were undeserving of your grace and compassion in light of their great sin, Lord, so also us. We are sinners. We have fallen far short of the glory of God. And so like, like they, we, we too are undeserving of your grace and compassion. And so, Lord, all we can say in humble gratitude and thankfulness is thank you for your grace. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you that you have forgiven us in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are faithful and loyal to the people that you have redeemed. Lord, make us your inheritance. Make us your people. And Lord, abide with us. And may we abide with you. Thank you, God, for being the God that you are and for revealing that to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.